Happy Lord's Day to you. I'm happy to stand up here and preach the Word to you because I love the Word and because I love you. Uh, let me explain what's happening right now. I'm going to preach the Bible. Uh, the Bible is a book. It's divided into 66 smaller books. It's divided into two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. We currently are studying one of those New Testament books. It's called the book of Hebrews. We have been studying it for quite a while. In fact, this is the 60th sermon in this series, and we're almost done. We're at the end of the final chapter, chapter 13. And so here's what's going to happen today. I'm going to read two verses, and then for about an hour, I'm going to explain just one of those verses, and then I'm going to give you four quick points of application. And the verse that we're going to be looking at today is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, but I will read initially verses 20 and 21. So if you would, please turn to that passage, Hebrews 13, 20, and stand, and I will read the word of God for us. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, we desire that you and your precious Son would receive glory today. As we study this benediction today, I pray that we would understand more of who you are and what you have done. More than that, Lord, we would ask that you would do it again and that you would do it in the hearts of those that know you. Lord, that you would do it in the hearts of those who know you not. Lord, may your gospel today come forth with power and produce much. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Point of the Bible is Jesus point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism, and the point of Hebrews chapter 13 is that we are to be doers of the word. Today's text is a benediction. What is a benediction? Well, it is a blessing or a prayer, or more specifically, it is a <clears throat> bestowal, <clears throat> pardon me, of a covenant blessing. Uh, you break that word down, it simply means good words. Bene, good, diction, words, benediction. Spanish people, when they are saying goodbye to one another, uh, they give one another sort of a benediction. For the word adios uh, can loosely be translated go with God. So that is kind of a benediction. Um, there are several benedictions in the Bible. Let me give you an example of one from the Old Testament and also one from the New Testament. The most famous one in the Old Testament comes from Numbers chapter 6, where it says in verses 22 through 26, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons, that is the priest, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel and you shall say to them, and here is the benediction, the good words, the blessing, the bestowal of covenant blessings. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is an Old Testament benediction. Let me give you one from the New Testament, and there are many. This one comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way, the Lord be with you all. Oftentimes at the end of a church service, a pastor will pronounce a benediction or a blessing upon the people. Uh, this uh, is something that we do sometimes, and I think it is a great idea. However, please know that the Bible does not say that you have to have a benediction. And I want to say that if you do have one, and it is a good thing, it needs to be thoughtful and it needs to be meaningful. It cannot be rote or, or mandatory. 
for 13 years, verses uh, um, from K through 12, I said the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag five mornings a week. Now, for those 13 years, I never knew what those words meant. Uh, my guess was that I was being patriotic and respectful to our country, but I never understood why we were doing the Pledge of Allegiance. I never questioned, and I never knew what the words meant. Well, I think that the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America is a good thing, and I think children should do it, and I think adults should do it. But I also believe that it should be explained and it should be understood, just as benedictions should be understood. Maybe you come from a church where they always recite the Lord's Prayer and there is always a benediction every Sunday. And I would say, amen, I'm all for that. I, however, also think that we need to be careful that it doesn't become a part of a ceremony uh, whereby we are going through the motions thoughtlessly. I think Aretha Franklin said it best when she said, you better think. When we sing, uh, you better think about the words. When we read the catechism, engage your mind and think. When someone reads scripture, you are to follow along and think. When someone prays, you are to engage your mind. Don't daydream, but think. When the preacher preaches, pay attention, think. And when a benediction is voiced, we are to think, to listen to receive it with joy. You see, worship is not amusement. Uh, The word amusement, by definition, means not to think. Muse means think. You stick an A in front of that word, and that A means to negate, or the opposite of. So to amuse means against thinking or not to think. Worship includes thinking and concentrating and meditating and contemplating. And we are to do this in every aspect of the worship service, even a benediction which might seem mandatory or perfunctory. Furthermore, because all benedictions in the Bible are different, no two of them are the same, There is therefore no prescribed wording or formula or method of pronouncing a benediction. Jesus pronounced a benediction right before he ascended to heaven, but we have no idea what was the content of that benediction. Luke 24, 50, then he, that is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them or pronounced a benediction. Amen. Hallelujah. What did he say? We have no idea what he said. All we know is that he pronounced a benediction. So a benediction can be as simple as God bless you or adios, or it can be as complex as the one that we are studying today. Speaking of the one that we are studying today, let's take a look at it. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 is our text. It is a benediction. It is good words. uh, But we're only going to have time to look at half of it today, and that is verse 20. This benediction has a context. And in the context, we see in the previous two verses, that is in Hebrews 13, 18, and 19, that the author is requesting prayer for himself. And now what he does in verses 20 and 21 is he prays for them. So he's asking prayer from them, and then in 20 and 21, he prays for them. Uh, Our benediction today, verses 20 and 21, even though it is very long, makes up just one sentence in the Greek language. And if we were to break this sentence down into its most basic parts, it would read simply, may God equip you. May God equip you. Uh, That's the bottom line. That's the lowest common denominator to which we would all say amen, because after all, who doesn't want to be equipped by God? But the Holy Spirit gives this request some glorious glorious embellishments which enable us to more fully appreciate the equipping work of God. And this benediction can be broken down into three parts. They all start with the letter G for your listening pleasure, and that is 
Part one is God, that is the one who is being prayed to. Part two is growth or being equipped, that is what is being prayed. And then glory or doxology, what God is to receive. Well, today we're only going to be able to cover the first third of that, and that is God, the one who is being called upon. Uh, again, verse 20, let me read that for you. Now, <clears throat> may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. I realize that we are stopping today in the middle of a sentence, but unless you want me to preach two hours, we're going to have to stop right there. Um, the word order of the items in verse 20 looks something like this. First of all, we see that he is the God of peace. And then next we see that he is the one who brought again Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep from the dead. And then the final part of that in the word order as it appears in the verse is that it was done by the blood of the eternal covenant, which begs at least four questions in my mind, and I will give you these four questions, so please don't take notes right now. I will give you these four questions in the order in which they appear in the text. We're going to go at it from a different angle, but for right now, we're just taking it apart. What are the questions that come to mind when we think about God in this verse? The first question is this, why is he called the God of peace? Uh, secondly, why is Jesus said to be brought again from the dead instead of raised from the dead? Uh, the third question is, why is Jesus referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep? And then the fourth question is, how did God use the blood of the eternal covenant in order to raise him? I'm going to answer these four questions, but I'm not going to do it in that order. In fact, I'm going to start with the last question that I just read. I'm going to make that our first question for the heart of the sermon today, and that is, how in the world did God use, point number one, the blood of the eternal covenant in order to raise his son? Well, let's think about the eternal covenant for a second. The eternal covenant is the new covenant. The reason it is referred to as eternal is to contrast it with the old covenant, which was not eternal, but was only temporary. You see, the old covenant has come to an end. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a formal binding relationship. It's not exactly a contract, but we can use that metaphor to shed some light on the meaning of what a covenant is. The old covenant was established between God and Israel at Mount Sinai with Moses. The book of Hebrews bends over backwards to say that the old covenant was deficient and is now defunct. It is over. It is not eternal. For example, when we studied Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, in speaking of the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant, it speaks of the inferiority of the old covenant. And it says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This was written probably in AD 66. By AD 70, the temple is torn down. The old covenant is not working. It is now defunct. By contrast, the new covenant, that is the agreement that God has made with his elect, with his church, the new covenant of both Jews and Gentiles, with Jesus being the mediator of that covenant instead of Moses, now it's Jesus. Well, what he's saying is it is an eternal covenant. It is good. It works. It's forever. And just as there was animal blood in the old covenant, you read the the account of when the old covenant on Mount Sinai was ratified in Exodus chapter 24, and you're going to see it was a really bloody ceremony. Just as there was blood in the old covenant, so too the new covenant had to be signed in blood or with death. But this time it is the blood of Jesus, which he shed on the cross when he died for his elect. And that blood referred to in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, here we go, this is where it's getting a little bit complicated, is said to be the means which raised Jesus from the dead, which begs the question, how does blood raise 
the dead. Have you ever considered that question? I have not until this week. This is brand new to me. Jesus is dead. He is in Joseph's tomb. Three days later, he comes back to life. How does he come back to life? This verse says he comes back to life by or through or by means of the blood of the eternal covenant. How in the world does this work? Please pay attention because this is complex, at least it is for my simple mind, and it is very important. What is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Well, at its very heart is the proof that his sacrifice for his people was approved by God. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval. In other words, if Jesus dies for our sins in our place on the cross, and then he goes to the grave and he stays in the grave, it's proof that the payment which he made was not sufficient. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That body's still in the grave. You are still in your sins. I used to coach Little League in Bayside. I had a, an opposing coach. I beat him most of the time. Sometimes he would beat me. But he was Jewish, and he would frequently mock me. And he would say, hey, reverend, when they find that body, you're going to realize your faith is nothing. Speaking of Jesus. And he was right. If, if, if they find that body, if that body is still in the grave, we've got nothing. Or to put it another way, If we are in Christ and we are joined to Christ, we are united to Christ, and Christ is in that grave, then spiritually speaking, so are we. However, if Christ has been raised and if Christ has ascended and if Christ is in heaven, then so are we. So the salvation of God's elect is contingent upon Christ's resurrection. Now, it's time for a trick question, and this will be of the smart aleck variety. And here is the question. Does the bare fact that Jesus was raised from the dead help us? Here's what I mean by that. He, he, he is in the grave. He is not breathing. And then he starts breathing. He comes to life. He's dead. He comes to life. Does that in and of itself help us? And the answer is no, it doesn't. No, not at all. The reason that that in and of itself doesn't help us is because there were many people in the Bible who were dead and they, and they were raised to life again. And none of them helped us or saved us. You have the Shunammite woman's son in 2 Kings chapter 4. You have the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7. You have Lazarus in John chapter 11, you have Eutychus in Acts chapter 20, and you have many others. They were all dead. They all came back to life, and the same could be said of Jesus. There's no difference in their state of being. Dead, actually dead, and now alive. It's not merely the fact that he came back to life, and indeed he did come back to life, but the fact that he came back to life is not what saves us. What is important is the means of his resurrection. That is what saves us. It is the means of his resurrection. That is what saves us. It is his resurrection through the means of the blood of the eternal covenant which saves us. And you say, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between him coming back to life and him coming back to life through means of the blood of the eternal covenant? Well, that's a good question. Let me get John Owen to help answer that question. And I'm going to paraphrase what this Puritan uh, says in order to make it more digestible. But, but I'm, I'm really simplifying what he said, but the essence is here. It, it, I can't present it to you as my own because these are not my thoughts, but I have dumbed down what he said so that I can understand it because I had to read it about 50 times in order to get it. But these are the thoughts of John Owen. Listen, and I sort of quote, the wellspring of saving grace lies in the resurrection of Jesus through the blood of the eternal covenant. Had God not been fully satisfied with the work of Christ on the cross, 
Christ would not have been raised. In such a case, our redemption would not have been completed and we would still be in our sins. The evidence would say that atonement has not been made. Well, I've already said that up to this point, so Owen and I are, you know, great minds think alike. We've already said that. But Owen goes on to say, the bare resurrection of Jesus would not have saved us for many others were raised to life by God's power. But the raising of Jesus, here we go, by the blood of the eternal covenant, by the blood of the eternal covenant, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Owen didn't repeat that, that's me, the raising of Jesus by the blood of the eternal covenant is what gives us assurance of complete redemption and salvation. End quote, And do you understand? You see, there is a means or a method or a how associated with the resurrection of Christ, which no other previously dead person who was brought back to life can claim. And that is the well-pleasing sufficiency of his death at the hands of God was the ingredient or the power source or the means that God used to raise him from the dead. There are other people in the Bible who are alive and then dead and then came back to life. And in none of those instances was any of those, of any, were any of those people brought back to life because of their own righteousness or their own sufficiency or their own sacrifice. God just chose to take dead people and to bring them back to life. But the reason that Jesus brings, God brings Jesus back to life is because of the sufficiency of his sacrifice. And so when we talk, and we talk about this all the time, the power of the resurrection, when we talk about the power of the resurrection, please don't think of it in terms of God's strength to take a dead body and bring it back to life. Although it does require a lot of strength to take someone who is dead and to bring them back to life. I'm not denying that that is an act of power. But but it's not referring to his mighty power over nature or creation. I mean, for crying out loud, he spoke the universe into existence. And if he wanted to, he could say another word and speak into existence another billion universes, and it would be effortless. It is not talking about his power over nature. That is amazing. It's amazing because we can't do that, but it's not amazing for God. When we talk about the power of the resurrection, it is what the resurrection accomplished and how it was accomplished that makes it so powerful. There's power in the blood. Jesus was raised by God through the blood of the eternal covenant. In other words, God raised him because there was perfect satisfaction in his death. Propitiation. What's propitiation? Well, basically, it is the appeasement of God's wrath. God is angry. He vents his anger on his son. He is satisfied that his son has taken that wrath. And as a result, the appeased God, the propitiated God, raises his son from the dead. That is the power of the resurrection. Do you grasp that the death of Christ was the power or the reason for the resurrection? And if he had been raised by any other means or rationale or reason, we would not have been helped or forgiven. Which brings us to our next question. This is question number two. Why does the text say that Jesus was brought again from the dead by God instead of saying that he was raised? Brought again from the dead is unusual wording. And this is where I'm going to need you to put on your thinking caps and Aretha Franklin think, think. The reason that this wording is used is because it is a reference to an Old Testament verse. And the Old Testament verse to which it is referring is Isaiah 63, 11. In Isaiah 63, 11, we read these words, and it's talking about the work that God did in bringing the children out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And it says, and then he, that is God, 
remembered the days of old. Those are the days of the Exodus of Moses and his people. And then there is a question asked. Where is he who brought them up? There's that same exact phrase, brought them up. Where is he, speaking of God, who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Again, I give you Isaiah 63, 11, which this audience would have been very familiar with. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Now, stick with me here and, and see if you can see the imagery. Do, do you see that the same wording and imagery and vocabulary is used here? Bringing them up with shepherds, leading the flock out. You have Moses and Aaron. They are the shepherds or the under-shepherds of Israel. Israel is the flock. And we read in Psalm 77:20, speaking of God, you led your people like a flock by the hands of Moses and Aaron. So they're your under-shepherds. They're leading the people. Where are they leading them? They're leading them out of Egypt, into the Red Sea, and up and out of the Red Sea. And he brought them up out of the Red Sea, just as he brought Jesus up out of the grave. And now you have Jesus, the great shepherd, and we are his flock. Uh, that same phrase, brought them up, is used in Isaiah 63.11. And it's used in reference to the resurrection of Christ in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Uh, do you see the comparison? Moses is leading the people through the Red Sea to safety on the other side. Moses is a type of Jesus. And in both cases, God brings them up or brings them up out of danger into safety. Consider how the words of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11, bring all of these things together. Zechariah 9, 11. As for you also... Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the bottomless pit. How do these people get out of the bottomless pit? The waterless pit, I'm sorry. It is through the blood of the covenant. Do you see it? God uses the blood of the covenant to get folks out of a pit. So follow the imagery. Israel is redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb. That, that's how they get out of Egypt. How did they get out of Egypt? They were redeemed. How were they redeemed? They were redeemed by blood. So they get to leave by the power of the blood. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. They're alive. Firstborn of the Egyptians is dead. Pharaoh panics. He lets the people go. They are redeemed by the blood. And they are led into what? They are led into a grave. They are led into the Red Sea. And through Moses and Aaron, their under-shepherds, God brings his redeemed people up and out of that sea, out of that grave. Likewise, Jesus redeems his people through the blood of the eternal covenant, that is his own blood. And likewise, God brings his son, just as he brought Israel out of the Red Sea and out of Egypt, God brings his son and those who are joined to his son up out of the grave. You see, Hebrews was written to Jews, people who knew the Old Testament, and they knew the power of the blood of the covenant to get them out of the pit or out of Egypt or out of the Red Sea. They knew that the agency was through shepherds like Moses and Aaron, and they knew that God was the one who brought them out of Egypt. They knew that God was the one that brought them out of the Red Sea. They knew their history. Amen. Hallelujah. But now, it's not deliverance from slavery, and it's not deliverance from the sea. It's not the defeat of the Egyptian army, but what it is now is the absolute and final defeat of death. It is the death of death and the death of Christ. And it is done by God, just as he brought Israel out of Egypt and out of the Red Sea, and he did it by blood. And now he does it again, but he does it more decisively and with broader ramifications. So, just as in the Exodus, once again, he uses a shepherd. But this time, it is the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is said to be the great shepherd of the sheep. Again, I read for you our text. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, 
the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Which brings us to our third question, and that is, why in the world does he refer to Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep? Well, to answer that question, I need to remind you that this occurs in the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, this author has used a lot of ink to speak about priests. Uh, the, the priest, the high priest, and he refers to Jesus as a priest. And when this author is referring to Jesus as a priest, what does he call him? He calls them not just a priest, not just a high priest, but he calls him what? Our great high priest. Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. He uses the word great in order to distinguish him from other priests. So Jesus is our great high priest, and here he uses the word great again to distinguish Jesus from other shepherds. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. The author has already referred in this chapter to their leaders, their pastors, elders, shepherds, overseers, in verses 7 and 17. But now he wants to distinguish those shepherds from the great shepherd of the sheep. Why the imagery of sheep? Is it because in Isaiah 63.11 there is the mention of shepherds? Is it because shepherds lead and care for the flock, and feed them? Is it because he makes us to lie down in green pastures and he leads us beside still waters, Psalm 23, that he disciplines us and that he protects us and his rod and his staff, they comfort us? Is he called the great shepherd of the sheep because the great shepherd of the sheep leaves the 90 and 9 and goes after the one? Well, Everything that I said is true, and I believe that all of those analogies fit. But the metaphor of the great shepherd of the sheep is one who is being brought out of the grave. And in order to go into the grave, it implies that there has been a death. Furthermore, it is more than just implied, but it is explicit that what is being referred to here is the blood, and blood there is referring to death, is the blood of the eternal covenant. And so as much as we can look at all of the aspects in which Jesus is a shepherd, the one that is being referred to here is the fact that Jesus is the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. It is in the middle of the bloodiest book in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. The reference to the great shepherd of the sheep is an acknowledgement of what Jesus said in John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep is the great shepherd of the sheep because the wolf of God's wrath was bearing down upon us and we were defenseless. And he, the great shepherd of the sheep, jumped in front of that wolf, jumped in front of the wrath of God, and he was shredded on the cross so that we would be free and that we would be safe. That is why he is the great shepherd of the sheep. He died on the cross in place of his sheep in order to pay for their sins. So Jesus, our great shepherd, dies for us and goes to the grave. And then what does God do? God brings him out not simply by restarting his heart, but he brings him out by the blood of the eternal covenant. And because that covenant is eternal, that blood will never lose its power, and the benefits of the resurrection likewise will also be eternal. Why are you going to be in heaven forever? You're going to be in heaven forever because the covenant is eternal, and it is the blood of the eternal covenant. Are you with me so far? There's one more question to answer. And that is, why is God referred to here as the God of peace? Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, why in the world call him the God of peace? 
What does that peace have to do with the rest of the verse? God of peace. Does that mean that he is at peace within himself? Well, certainly God is at peace within himself. Does it mean that he is at peace with the other members of the Trinity? Well, once again, there's perfect peace and unity and love and harmony between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's the God of peace. Does that mean that he gives us subjective feelings of peace and tranquility and assurance in our hearts and within our souls? Well, certainly, if you have ever been distraught, maybe you have had a medical procedure and you felt very uneasy and you've prayed to the Lord, Philippians 4, 7, you know that God is the God of peace in that he gives the peace of God that passes all understanding, which guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And he produces peace in our lives because Galatians 5.22 says that the fruit of the Spirit is peace. He gives us peace in our hearts and he produces peace in our lives. The God of all peace, does that mean that he causes us to be at peace with one another? Well, certainly that is true, that God grants his children love toward one another and forgiveness toward one another and, and, and understanding. And there are procedures in place for restoration so that there can be peace between you and me. And that comes from the God of peace. And we are able within the church to be at peace with one another because we serve the God of peace. Everything that I just said about peace coming from God is true. And it should cause us to rejoice and to say amen. So say amen. Amen. However, that has nothing whatsoever to do with this passage at all. This is in the book of Hebrews. And this is a benediction which is given in covenantal terms, in gospel terms. And let's just say I'm wrong about my assessment of the great shepherd of the sheep. The rest of the verse speaks of his blood that is his death and his resurrection. The reason God is called the God of peace in this verse is because he himself initiated and executed a plan in order to make peace with his enemies. He loves us and he saved us. That is why he is the God of peace. He desires to be at peace with us. But we are not naturally at peace with God because of sin. We are not at peace with him. In fact, it's not just an awkward silence between us and God. I mean, you know those people that you're, you're, you're not at peace with? And you're not out and out fighting, but you're, it's just an awkward silence. Just something's not right. You just kind of pretend like you don't see them and they pretend like they don't see you. There's just that awkward silence. And that's not the situation. This is not a situation of passive indifference. We are at war with God. Pride month is war with God. It is sticking your middle finger up at God and saying to him, you will not tell me what to do. Ephesians 2, 3 we were by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. Do you know that most members of the human race, mankind are currently at war with God? You know that used to be the case with us too? I mean, we hated him. We, we wished him dead. We did not want him telling us what to do. And he hated us. Psalm 5.5, 5, you hate all evildoers. Psalm 7.11, God is a righteous judge and he's angry with the wicked every day. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Matthew 10, 28. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This is all out war. That is the condition of God with mankind. And Ephesians 2, 3, to remind you of it again, says that we used to be in the state of the rest of mankind, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But now something is different. 
Not only has the war ceased, but there is now peace with God. That is why he is the God of peace. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, the God of peace, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we used to be at war, and now we're friends. Well, when considering the concept of peace with God, I think it is very important that we be reminded that God used to be our enemy. And that is not an enemy that you want to have. It's dark outside. I've got some new flowers that Teresa Lupo told me to buy. They are in my tiny little garden, and I walk outside, and I don't have any shoes on, and and I, I don't have a weapon. All I have is a hose, and I'm putting water on the flowers. And I walk inside, and I go up to my bed, and I go to sleep, and I do not have a care or a worry in the world. Peace doesn't mean anything to me, because all I know is peace. However, imagine that you are living in the Ukraine. And imagine that the building beside the building that you live in has been blown to smithereens and that most of your neighbors are either dead or they are on the run. And then all of a sudden, one day, Putin said, we've run out of money, we're getting out of here. And he heads north. He exits, and the war's over. And then your building is repaired, and the building next to yours is rebuilt, and the neighborhood is refurbished, and everybody who was a refugee moves back, and things are the way that they used to be. And now there is peace. Do you realize how much more you are going to appreciate a good night's sleep having lived through a war. I think this is why we don't love God enough. We are at peace with God, objectively, that is true. It's a good thing, through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we fail to remember is that we used to be at war and that the wrath of God was upon us and that wrath was removed through the God of peace remembering what we used to be and what our condition was will help us in the now to love him more and to appreciate that peace. See, I think most of mankind does not know that they are enemies of God and that they are in danger. But you know that. You know that because you are a Bible believer. And the Holy Spirit has awakened you to see that you were in trouble with God and then you went looking for peace and you found peace and you cried out to Jesus and you said, have mercy upon me. And guess what? He had mercy upon you and you found peace with God and then you got the peace of God. The peace of God is a result of having peace with God. There is an offer of a relationship of peace and you understand that, but have you forgotten that you used to be at war with him? All of our war crimes have been erased. They've been paid for. They've been forgotten, forgiven. We are at peace. How? By the great shepherd of the sheep laying down his life for the sheep and by God bringing that great shepherd of the sheep out of the grave by the blood of the eternal covenant. And when that happens, we see ourselves as guilty before God, but now forgiven. We love God oh so much more We believe that Jesus died for us and we're saved, and that means something. Our standing and our relationship with God changes because we who once were at war are now at peace. In other words, the gospel is of first importance. Here's why it's a big deal. You make your way through life. You know you're headed toward the judgment. Everybody's heading there. You can't avoid it. You look at yourself and you say, oh my goodness, as I look at me, am I going to make it? I'm filled with so many sins and shortcomings and, and, and failures and faults. What guarantee do I have or assurance do I have that I'm going to be in heaven when it's all said and done? And I say to you, look at these words. He is the God of 
peace. Is there anything more that you would like God to do for you in order to assure you that you are going to be okay in the final day? Can he do something? Was there something else you'd like him to do? No, there's nothing more that he could do. God, who cannot lie, made an eternal covenant with his elect. He gave his son. His son, the great shepherd of the sheep, bled on the cross in order to ratify that covenant. God looked at that that sacrifice, and he was pleased. And by that blood sacrifice, he raised Jesus to life. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life and everlasting peace. Do you understand that the reason why you can rest assured that you are at peace with God is because he is the God of peace. He's not going to go back on his word. He's not going to go back on his eternal covenant. God has more to lose by letting you perish than you do. And so today, rest in the finished work of Christ, believing that that is totally sufficient. Ephesians 2.13. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So that's half of the benediction. Lord willing, next week we'll get to the other half. For now, let me give you four quick points of application. Number one, strive to grow in theological depth and expression when praying. Strive or try to grow in your theological depth and expression, that is the words you use when praying. Uh, This prayer of benediction is so deep and so profound that we spent the entire verse looking at just half of it. And I say to you, you need to grow as a prayer. The best way to grow as a prayer and to have a depth of understanding and expression in prayer is simply by reading and memorizing the Bible. You're not going to do any better than that. The next thing that you can do is start to pray regularly with people who really know how to pray, people who really know God. The way that you learn how to pray is being at prayer meetings and praying with people who know how to pray. Their prayers will build you. Their prayers will teach you. Another thing that you can do is you can begin to read and to meditate upon the prayers of the Puritans. There is a book called The Valley of Vision. It is a collection of Puritan prayers. You don't read it as a novel. You read it as a daily devotional. You read it slowly. You meditate upon it. Strive to grow in your theological knowledge and expressiveness in prayer. Number two, and closely related, it's almost the same as point number one, but... Point number two, study the gospel and grow in your depth and understanding of all that God has done to save you. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful to say it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Amen. I, I mean, we, we, we never want to lose that. But Lord, take us deeper into the glories of Calvary. Now, I, I've been reading the Bible for over half a century, and I just learned this week that God raised Jesus through the blood of the eternal covenant. And when I discovered that, I almost jumped out of my skin. Study the gospel deeply. If you want to study it very deeply, I recommend to you a book by John Murray entitled Redemption Accomplished and Applied not light reading. But I do recommend this book, uh, first of all, because it's a good book, and I recommend this book because I have received encouragement. And let me tell you the encouragement that I have received. A few months ago, I recommended a book. When I did, one of the members of the church read the book, sent me a text, and said, that it was a good book. So I'm going to keep recommending books. Here we go. Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. It will help you in your depth of understanding with your salvation. Number three, and most importantly, because most of you to whom I am speaking are saved, rest in the God of peace. I write my sermons out in a spiral notebook. When I was originally writing out application point number three, I wrote, 
rest in the peace of God. And then I paused and I thought to myself, that's not what the text says. It's not resting in the peace of God. It is resting in the God of peace. Do you see the difference? We have peace with God, but the goal is not peace with God. The goal is God himself. And so rest in him because he is the one who loved you and saved you. Peace didn't love you and save you. God loved you and saved you. So rest in the God of peace. The eternality of the covenant, the sufficiency of his blood, the power of the resurrection, they all speak to one fact if you are in Christ, and that is you are at peace with God. So rest in the God of peace. Enjoy him. Delight in him. Draw close to him. Rest in the arms of the great shepherd of the sheep. And finally, application point number four, be saved. Be saved. If you are not saved, God is your enemy and you are in trouble. You are at war and you're going to lose. But you don't have to. Because today is the day of salvation, and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so, with whatever your understanding of that is, if the faith in your heart is genuine, you believe that Jesus died for you, simply cry out to him and ask him to have mercy on you. Why are you waiting? Why are you delaying? Why will you continue this war? It can end just like that by you putting your trust in him and asking him to save you. And you say, well, I really don't, I mean, I, I, I'd like to be in a right relationship with God, and I don't understand everything that you said this morning, but I, I, I know I'm not saved, I know I want to be saved. Great, come see me, we'll sit down, we'll talk, I will explain it to you to the best of my ability, but, but, but for now, you really don't need me, I can't save you. What you need is a humble heart. What you need is an awareness of your sin. What you need is a fear of eternal hell. What you need is to know that God loves you and that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient. And what you need, with whatever wording you use, is to cry out to him and put your trust in him. Be saved. Father in heaven, I thank you for the blood of the eternal covenant which raised your son, the great shepherd of the sheep. Help us now, Lord, please, to delight in that and to rest in you, the God of peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.